Let's now turn for our scripture reading to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. We'll read the first 24 verses of John, chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know, you do not know what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Connection with our scripture reading also, we turn again to Article 1 of the Belgic Confession. Article 1, the only God. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text this evening is verse uh, 24 of John chapter 4, and uh, it's a verse in which we have one of, if not the most direct uh, scriptural basis for our confession of faith concerning God as a simple spiritual being. And those words simple and spiritual, they're closely associated. They're not altogether synonymous, but they are very closely related as we 
come to reflect upon what they mean. God is a spiritual being. And that certainly is taught in all of Scripture. It's taught in the Old as well as in the New Testament. Uh, but the plainest revelation of God's spiritual nature is given by our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we want to reflect upon the meaning of his words when he said to the Samaritan woman, God is spirit. And from the outset, we acknowledge that uh, we're challenged to to stretch our minds, to uh, try to grasp something more of what the Bible teaches us concerning uh, the incomprehensible nature of God. And uh, we must approach this subject with, with humility, uh, recognizing that uh, it is a challenge to come up with the proper words and definitions that accurately communicate the the teaching of God's word and to uh, to appreciate the the meaning of those words in a way that uh, that moves us and deepens our knowledge of God and uh, it's challenging uh, intellectually challenging but that ought not to lead us to think that this is just kind of a a theoretical kind of philosophical subject that we have before us. That's not how our Lord Jesus presents it. He presents it in close association with worship. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so this teaching here is is foundational for what is fundamental to the Christian life. And that is the worship of God. And so though a sermon like uh, this evening's may not immediately appear to be uh, obviously applicable in terms of the practicalities of our day-to-day life, it's one of those messages that uh, lays an essential foundation for what is most central to our lives in our thoughts of God and in our worship of God. Know and worship your God as a spiritual being. That's our our theme from this passage before us. And we begin by considering uh, the nature of God as spirit. And by that we mean that uh, this description of God as spirit pertains to his very essence, his very nature. It doesn't simply say that that God is spiritual or that God has a spirit, or God, uh, a part of God is spirit, or anything like that. But it describes God in, a, in an essential way as spirit. It doesn't even say God is a spirit. It says God is spirit. Spirit defines who he is in such a basic way. And we also need to understand, appreciate from the outset, that what Jesus says here of God is a revelation of the triune God. So what is said of God as spirit is true of the Father. It is true of the Son. It is true of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not simply referring to the Holy Spirit by this language, but he is referring to the triune God. What is true of the Son and the Father no less than the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the context, the immediate context refers especially to the Father. 
The Father is seeking those who worship God in spirit and in truth. And God is spirit. So this is not an aspect of God, but it is essential to him. But then the question is, what does it mean? How do we understand this language? And we must begin with the recognition of the, the limitations of our, our speech and of our knowledge, because essential to the Bible's revelation of God is the fact that he is incomprehensible. He is beyond our grasp. And there are many such expressions of that in, in the scripture. And in the book of Job, we read in the 37th chapter, with God is awesome majesty. And then as for the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power. We cannot find him. That is, we cannot grasp the, the magnitude and the mystery of his being. We hear something similar to that in the confession of, of, uh, Agar in the book of Proverbs in the 30th, uh, chapter where we read, I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Now, Agar did indeed have a true knowledge of the Holy One, but he recognizes how limited it is, how meager it is in contrast to the the reality of God's transcendent majesty. I have neither learned wisdom nor have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know? So we must approach this whole subject of the knowledge of God with reverence. And with awe, God is glorious beyond any kind of neat definitions that uh, I could give you tonight. However accurate they may be according to scripture, we confess that God is a spiritual being. But to explain what that means, we mostly have to talk about what it does not mean. In other words, we confess uh, the, the being of God largely by negation. That is by confessing what God is not when it comes to his spiritual uh, essence and nature. God is distinct and separate altogether from everything creaturely. Everything that he has made is in an altogether different category than the eternal God. And we'll look at four things that God is not when it comes to his spiritual nature. He is not material. He's not made of stuff of any kind. You know, one of the clearest and actually most helpful confessions of that is found in the uh, the children's catechism, where children may learn to say that God doesn't have a body like men. God does not have a body. But yet we read in uh, in so many passages of Scripture, including the chapter in Isaiah that we read in, uh, verse 31. Well, we can actually go back to, uh, verse 30 of Isaiah and we hear such, uh, language as, uh, what we read in verse 27 and following where it says, behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue like a devouring fire. 
His breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck. And we read on through this chapter, and it talks about God's outstretched arm. And the next chapter speaks of God's hand. And we might ask, well, we just confess that God is uh, spirit. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body like men. But there are so many passages in Scripture that speak of God as if He has eyes, as if He has a mouth, as if He has ears. Who hears? His tongue, His lips. His hands, His arms. Well, how do we understand that? Is there a contradiction here? No, rather we recognize that there is, there is accommodation. God condescends to reveal Himself in a way that connects with our experience, in a way that we can relate to, in a way that vividly communicates the reality of God's power and of God's wrath but not in a way that should lead us to conclude that, oh yes, God actually does have a body like men. In that connection, we must also say that we are not to misunderstand what the Bible teaches when it says that God made man after his own likeness and in his own image he made him. Male and female, he made them. That doesn't mean that that uh, people are like miniature replicas of God. No, as created beings, yes, we have we have members to our bodies. We have eyes and ears, and we are able to speak. We're able to see. And God is the ultimate seer. He doesn't have to look around because everything is always eternally present before his penetrating gaze that reaches absolutely to everything and everyone. And God is powerful with a power that cannot be compared with any kind of creaturely display of, of might. Oh, their horses are strong, the Lord says, of uh, the Egyptians' horses. Yeah, comparatively to other animals, but in comparison to God, they're but flesh. They are not spirit. God is infinite in power. And our members and our faculties are just dim, creaturely, bodily uh, reflections of God's ability and power, which is infinite. But these powers do not exist in a body, or they would be limited. And they're not limited. God is not material. God, secondly, is not visible. As Paul says in First Timothy, God is the immortal, invisible God. He dwells in light inapproachable, whom no man has seen nor can see. Now, does that mean that God is invisible to us because he's so far away? Or because the clouds cover him? Or is it because our vision is just too weak to look upon him? No, it's because God's very essential being is not visible. He is the eternal invisible God. And every time God manifests himself in some visible way, that again is a condescension of God, whereby he appears in some fashion, sometimes as a man in scripture, sometimes in fire, sometimes in cloud. But these are all condescending manifestations of the God who is invisible. That pertains to his very nature. Now we might say that there is kind of a reflection uh, in our own nature as human beings because we are made body and soul. 
or body and spirit. And our souls or spirits are not visible. They are invisible things. You've perhaps seen something of that if you've ever observed someone die and you've observed a change that came over them. A sudden silence. Perhaps it was obviously that they, obvious that they quit breathing. But it's an awesome thing to recognize that kind of change that takes place when the spirit departs. And all that remains is the body without the soul, without the spirit. But you saw nothing ascend from that body to the ceiling or beyond. No, the spirit departed to God who gave it. But that invisible spirit that animated that body is no longer there. It's with the Lord. For Christians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the human spirit is also invisible. But that doesn't make it identical identical with God, as we will see. Because the human spirit is, is yet a limited spirit. It's invisible, but that doesn't mean that it's infinite. That it mean, that doesn't mean that it's ever, everywhere present. God is not material. God is not visible. But thirdly, God is not spatial. In other words, there is no, there is no size or shape or dimensions to God. Uh, there are no boundaries to God's being. God doesn't have any edges beyond which God does not exist. God is infinite. In his spiritual being. God is never more in one place than he is in another place. Now I may say, well, that doesn't seem to fit with the scripture. We read in chapter 31 of God coming down. We pray to our Father who is in heaven. We pray that God would be present with us. Does that mean that sometimes God is absent? No, no, no. God fills heaven and earth. That doesn't mean that the heavens and the earth define the boundaries of God's existence. God is infinite and boundless in his being. And so when the Bible speaks of God's presence, it, it speaks of the manifestation of his presence in favor or in wrath. God is present in hell. He is present in judgment. There is no comfort to God's presence among those who suffer eternal punishment. God is present when he manifests his His glory and his grace to his people through his word, by the conviction of his greatness and his favor. That's what we pray for, that God would animate our worship, that God would enable us to sing from the heart as unto a Lord who is who is with us in worship. But that doesn't mean that God is somehow limited and God moves about. God is not a spatial being. He doesn't occupy a limited space like our spirits do, like angels do. Angels are ministering spirits. They don't have bodies like people, but they're limited. Angels aren't everywhere at one time. No, they they are limited. Only God is unspatial in his In his existence, he is everywhere present. Again, this is presented in scripture, not in terms of an elaborate philosophical definition of God, but in the way of worship and meditation and prayer and reflection. Right? That's what we hear, isn't it? In Psalm 139, where we read, where can I go from your spirit or where 
can I flee from your presence? If I ascended to heaven, you are there. If my, if I make my bed in hell or Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the, in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I were to follow the, the, the rays of the sun, I would never be outside the presence of God. God doesn't expand or contract or change places or move. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light. Nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. We'll sing those words after the service. The immortal, invisible God. When we say our Father in heaven, we are not confessing some limitation to God's being, but rather we are confessing that we are to have no earthly thought of his heavenly majesty. And to think of God as somehow limited anywhere, any place, is to have an earthly thought of his majesty. The heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, how much less a temple, a beautiful temple that Solomon built. God is not visible. God is not material. God is not spatial. God is not made of different parts. He doesn't have members as we have members to our body. He's not made of different components as we are made of body and spirit. In that sense, we confess that God is a simple. He doesn't have parts or different uh, pieces or components to his existence that are somehow patched together or together make up his being. Well, that's very important, isn't it? When we think of, when we think of God's triune being as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not as if the three persons of the, of the Trinity somehow share God's attributes with each given a third. No, each person of the Trinity is all that God is in his being. Yes, the Father is almighty, and the Son is almighty, and the Spirit is almighty. That doesn't mean that there are three almighties. The persons of the Trinity do not share the attributes of God. They each fully, absolutely possess the attributes of God. For God is one in his being, though three in person, in a mysterious and incomprehensible way. That's also important when we think of different characteristics of God. God is just, God is merciful, God is loving, and we could go on. But it doesn't mean that God is, what, 70% uh, loving and 30% just? Or as if God has some kind of a percentage of different characteristics? No, God is fully all that he is, absolutely, without variation, without change. God is holy, God is love. There is no conflict among the attributes of God because they are all identified with his very being. Yes, I realize that uh, we're simply describing God in terms of what he is not, and that in itself is rather humbling, isn't it? Because it emphasizes that we can only think in rather creaturely ways because everything of our experience involves limitations. Not so with God. But positively, when it comes to the fact that God is spirit, we must also appreciate, and this is fundamental to our confession, we confess God's unlimitable life and activity and power. 
Isn't that what we heard in Isaiah chapter 31? Now the Egyptians are men and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. Why would anyone resort to horses and men and forsake the Lord as their trust? Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, and who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Why turn from the absolute, eternal, infinite, self-existent God to a creature? This calls for worship, brothers and sisters. It calls for worship with reverence and godly fear. It calls for spiritual worship. A worship that is fitting to his majesty and glory. Or that truly endeavors to be. To give him the glory that is due his holy name. And that leads us to consider, secondly, the necessity of worship in spirit and in truth. But I'm sorry, we also have to begin by saying what this does not mean. First of all, it means that we must not confuse God with his creation. That's what pantheism does, right? And as I said, this teaching about God's being is essential for a true knowledge of God and for a true worship of God. Because we must not confuse the fact that God is everywhere present to uh, the idea that God is everything. That's pantheism. That is to confuse the creator with the creature. God is everywhere present, but he remains transcendent and distinct from his creation. He is not to be identified with it. God may not be located and worshipped in anything as if something contains or represents God's glory. That's emphasized when God spoke to Israel. When God revealed himself from Mount Sinai, he reminds them repeatedly that they saw no form. They heard a voice, but they saw no form. And they are not to corrupt themselves by fashioning images, because that would degrade God. And it would hinder them and prohibit them from worshiping him with spiritual worship. God must not be worshipped by the use of images. You see, the spiritual nature of God is foundational for the second commandment, that we're not to uh, form a graven image, any likeness of anything in heaven or on earth. We're not to worship God according to our own imaginations that would limit him, that would uh, define him in a way that fails to account for his transcendent glory. Images by definition lie. Why? Because they are all those things that God is not. They are material things. They're made of stuff. The only way that people can form images is by taking created stuff that God made and to confuse the creator with the creature. And images are visible. They're things people can see. God is invisible. And images are spatial. They have boundaries. They have limits. And they're made of different parts and components. And so in every respect, they misrepresent and they lie about God of glory. God must not be worshipped by the use of image images. Another negative, God is not worshipped by mere outward actions. That is, God is not 
worship simply by uh, the proper uh, posture and the the appropriate bowing or this movement or that movement or this sound or that. Well, that doesn't mean that the body is no importance of no importance when it comes to worship because our posture, where our eyes are fixed, what our ears are attentive to, what comes out of our mouths during worship, that's meaningful. That's significant. We don't worship God as some disembodied spirits. No, we worship God also in the body. But at the same time, it's possible for people outwardly to be looking in the right direction and listening to what's being said and to even joining in with the singing and yet their motivations and their inner thoughts, their attitudes, and their whole idea of what they're doing really has nothing to do with spiritual worship because they're not seeking to listen to God with the humility of faith and sing with understanding and devotion and reverence and love. And so, yes, the body is significant in terms of our worship, but only as expressive of what takes place inwardly in our inner man, our desires, our inner thoughts, the thoughts of our spirits. You know, there's always a tendency to give attention to the outward aspects of worship. And the more elaborate and the more outwardly splendid worship becomes, the greater the danger of substituting form for substance, substituting ritual for spiritual worship, because the attention can be focused on this, the attention of our eyes and of our ears or our our smell, right? God is not worshipped by obsolete forms. Now that refers to uh, the Old Testament forms of worship that were characterized by outward beauty and ritual and movement and smells and activities. The elaborate beauty of the tabernacle with its colors, the priestly garments, the incense that was burned, the sacrifices that were offered, the choruses and the musical instruments that were appointed for worship. Those were the things that were all a part of the Old Testament worship located at that one central place that God had appointed at Jerusalem. No, the Samaritan woman was wrong. Jerusalem is the place to worship because that's where the house of God was at that point. But the hour is coming when the true worshipers will worship not in the, on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but in spirit and truth. God's people gathered under his word in the presence of the Holy Spirit will replace that temple. They will offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. You know that a number of years ago, there was a study committee formed and a report given, I think it was in classes Southwest, on the subject of, of Eastern Orthodoxy. And we might think, Eastern Orthodoxy? Why? Well, the reason for that was is that some of the churches were losing members to Eastern Orthodoxy. There was a minister who left the Reformed faith and joined the Eastern Orthodox Church. And that led to some head-scratching and some questions. Why? 
Why would people forsake the Reformed faith to move to Eastern Orthodoxy? And they asked those questions very seriously and sympathetically in a way that tried to understand the motivation. And one of the, those motivations was the appeal of stability, the appeal of tradition, the appeal of a kind of worship that really doesn't change from year to year, from century to century, that follows ancient readings, that recites ancient prayers that have been the possession and the use of the church for hundreds of years. Yes, and they found that in Eastern Orthodoxy. And for many of them, wow, what a, what a change from, uh, modern American fundamentalism when you never knew what was going to be happening in the worship service next week because you got a worship committee coming up with all kinds of stuff. And it's like a free for all and everything's always changing to keep in step with the latest fads in music or in this or that, being creative and inventive to make worship meaningful and interest and to improve the music and to draw people. And a lot of people woke up to what a circus is going on in so many professing churches with respect to worship. Oh, the appeal of something stable, traditional. And that ought to be taken seriously. And we ought to be concerned with the, the coherence and continuity of our worship with the church of, uh, of the first centuries and our continuity with the church, the worship of the church of the New Testament where you have no indication of all these elaborate kinds of things that actually was another reason why people would go off to Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism. One is tradition, the other is beauty. Beauty. You ever gone into an Eastern Orthodox church? It's beautiful. Ornate, elaborate woodwork, perhaps. Different colors, different smells. Elaborate robe, uh, robes and, and rituals that, that would tend to elevate the soul. That's the idea, right? And if people rely on those kinds of things and they associate them with heaven and with spiritual worship, well, yeah, those things become necessary. That's where it's at. But that is to rely on obsolete forms. That is to rely on things that are not found in the New Testament worship of the church, which is rather Simple, word-centered. And the beauty was not in the elaborate, ornate uh, characteristics of the building. It really didn't matter whether people met in a house or in a rented hall or by the river if that's all they had. What matters is that they would behold the beauty of the Lord manifested in the supreme revelation of God through His Son, where Christ is preached where the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ are proclaimed and extolled, where his one sacrifice for sin was constantly held forth as the revelation of God's righteousness and justice and mercy and love, where the word of God was read and taught and the sacraments were observed, the simplicity of those elements that Christ appointed to direct our faith to the body and blood of Jesus Christ, through the bread and wine or the water that's sprinkled, signifying the washing away of our sins. But you know that there's one thing that we have to admit, and that is that without the Holy Spirit, Reformed worship is boring. 
very low key. Not much to get excited about. Without the Holy Spirit animating us in our singing, without the Holy Spirit giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand the riches of God's Word, to be drawn to those things, those invisible things revealed in Scripture. Without that, okay, Reformed worship is boring. But the alternative to boring worship is not to bring in the clowns. It's not to start resorting to all the elaborate ornamentation and rituals of an obsolete form that is not spiritual in nature, but fleshly and outward. We're to worship God in spirit and truth, focusing on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that leads us positively then to understand this worship that God requires of us as a worship of God in the one way to the Father. Yes, it's true that we we may feel a bit overwhelmed or or lost when we consider uh God's transcendent glory and these these definitions that we've considered pertaining to God's infinite being. But that can be good. It can be good to feel a little bit overwhelmed. It can be good to be humbled with the realization of the limitations of our of our knowledge of God, and especially as that brings us to appreciate ever more deeply the supreme revelation of God in his own Son, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in God manifested in the flesh, the mystery of godliness. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John says, no one has ascended into heaven It's like the answer to the question of Agar, but he who descended, even the Son of Man, who is in heaven, he says. The Son of Man who descended to earth, who dwelt among us, he is in heaven? Well, yes, with respect to his majesty, with respect to his divine being and glory. Yes, he is. Right? That's what we confess with regard to the ascension of Christ. Jesus ascended into heaven. Does that mean that he is no longer present with us as he promised? Well, yes, he is. Because his divinity exceeds the boundaries and the limitations of his humanity and the body. And with respect to his grace and spirit and majesty, he is at no time absent from us, even though he is bodily in heaven. And when he was bodily on earth, with respect to his divine majesty and glory, he never left heaven. The divine nature doesn't move around. But the wonder is that in him, the fullness of the God had dwelt bodily, such that Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And if we feel overwhelmed by the revelation of God's transcendent, incomprehensible majesty, we are to look at the supreme revelation of God in Christ. And there we find rest for our souls in a revelation of God that doesn't terrify us, that doesn't confound us, but a revelation of God that comforts us in the supreme demonstration of his saving love and mercy in one who took upon himself our own nature, our creatureliness, our subjection to misery and suffering and sorrow. And he did so to reconcile us to God and bring us into a relationship with his Father as our Father also. 
Yes, Jesus didn't come only to teach us, but to redeem us to God. And by his suffering, he brought us to the Father. And through him, we have access to God. He is the way, the truth. We don't separate those things. We come to God in the way. And that way is also the way of truth in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we worship God with our spirit. There is an Old Testament expression of this in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 8 and 9. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. With my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. And that means that spiritual worship, even as we worship together corporately as God's people, it's a worship of desire. It's a worship of seeking the Lord inwardly, listening to his voice, receiving his truth into our souls. With a humble desire, with our hearts laid bare, with open ears to receive his word, we might know his fellowship and walk in his sight. We would worship God in spirit and in truth. The Father seeks such to worship him. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That's what the Father is seeking above all. He's not seeking missionaries. He's not seeking evangelists. He's not seeking preachers. He's not seeking workers. He's seeking worshipers. Because that's the most important thing that we do in life. And it's the most important thing that all God's people have in common. They worship God in spirit and truth through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is continuing on that quest. When Jesus had to pass through Samaria, well, he didn't literally have to, but yes, he did in divine purpose. He had to pass through Samaria because there was a woman there and there were others in that town that God was seeking to bring them into a relationship to himself as true worshipers. Amen.